so I've racked up about four thousand dollars in losses approximately because I've collected some. Really, and that's another lessons learned for new investors is don't take partial payments because yeah. that could delay the eviction process. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. Hey, how are you doing? Thank you for joining me on Just Start Real Estate. I appreciate it. I'm happy to have you here. I'm excited to be here with you. And if you are coming back for more, if you're a returning listener, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I think I'm doing something right. That's why you're back. And if you're new, I think we got a good one for you today. This is a guy who has started a real estate investing career. He is a buy and hold guy. He has a bunch of buy and hold properties. He's a landlord and he has a nine to five job that he loves. He doesn't want to leave it, but he's building his real estate business on the side. And I think that's just real. That's how a lot of us either start out or that's how we stay because we like our job or it just provides you know something that we want to, to keep. It could be insurance, could be whatever, right? But a lot of us either start out with a job or we maintain a job while we're building our business and even after we built it. So that is the guy that we have on today. This is the guy you wanna hear talk. Like I said, he's a buy and hold investor. He worked as an accountant in Southern California. He not only works in Southern California, he invests outside of Southern California. So he got his real estate by investing and house hacking his primary residence in Orange County. And he, like I said, he currently owns 63 rental units in the markets of Kansas City, Indianapolis, in Little Rock. Remember, he's in Southern California and he has a full-time job, right? How do you do all that? We're going to find out. He also has a popular podcast called Bigger Cash Flow. I was on that podcast a while back. Uh, highly recommend it. It was a good, a good conversation. He's a great guy. He's a knowledgeable guy. He's very down to earth, very relatable. You know, it's one of those, if he can do it, you can do it kind of a thing. And I think that's exactly what he wants. He's it's, it's not me saying that because, oh, he's, if he's so he can do it, he's, you know, he's smart, super smart guy, but he's a relatable guy. He has a wife, he has, you know, all the things that we all have, but he's also making it work and he's crushing it with his rentals. So I'm, Really excited about this interview. I know you guys are going to love it. I had a great time talking to him. So let's dive into it and talk to Bo Kim. Hey, Bo, thanks for doing this, man. Thanks for being on the show. I appreciate you taking the time and getting on here to talk to our listeners. Yeah, excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And uh, we talked a bit before we jumped on here. And uh, I, I really love... I love what you're doing and I love the message that you're going to be able to deliver today. I'm really, really excited about it. It's, um, it's, a, it's a common uh, scenario, but not enough people who come on my show are actually living it like you are. Uh, but before we get, that's a little teaser for everyone out there. But before we get too deep into that, can we just rewind a little bit? Let's go back to prior to real estate. What were you doing? What got you interested in real estate and how did you dive in the first time? Yeah. So the way that I got introduced to real estate, I always wanted to buy real estate. That was a dream of mine since I was little. Um, my parents immigrated with us uh, from South Korea when we were five years old. And we've been renting all of our lives. My parents are still renters. And I specifically remember this was uh, the suburbs of Orange County we were living in. When I was about 12, 13 years old, our landlord who had been our landlord for the past three years 
came by, but this time she brought her young son around. And he was around the same age as I was. And she was basically teaching her son how to be a landlord. And I had to sit in there, not because my dad was trying to teach me about real estate, but I just had to translate, right? I was the only fluent English speaker. So there we were, the four of us sitting down talking about next year's rent increases. And my dad was just focused about, hey, how can we not increase rent? When what really intrigued me was, hey, what is this lady doing that she has her own property? And she told me that she has three other rentals in the area. So after that whole conversation, we negotiated rent for the next year. I asked my dad, hey, how come we don't do what she's doing? And my my dad's response was, Bo, we can't afford it. We can't be landlords. We can't own rental properties. We barely just get by. And that was the message that I got when I was 12, 13. Wow. So I honestly thought we can't afford it. That was pretty much it. Yeah. Now, yeah, fast forward to when I was about 22, graduating from college. Now, that memory kind of faded away. Um, It was just kind of in the back burner. But I always knew that I wanted to own my own primary residence. And out of college, I got a decent job. I wasn't making a ton of money, just $60,000. But I didn't have any student debt. I went to community college. I saved profusely. I didn't go out on lavish meals or drinks or anything like that. So I had no debt coming out of college and anything that I made aside from rent and the essentials, I saved and saved. So I was quickly able to get my own first property, which was a townhouse with only 5% down. And this was another lesson for me because there's so many misconceptions out there. And I thought I had to have 20% down. Yeah, That's what I thought I had to have. So when my real estate agent told me, hey, Bo, if you try to save up 20%, you're not going to be able to buy a property for six years based on your you know, uh, salary increases and your savings rate. Yeah. Um, you're projecting six years out. So I was like, well, by the time I wait six years, what if prices go up another $100,000? Right. Or what if interest rates go up another 2%, right? Yep. There's so many variables. So when my agent told me, hey, you, you, know, you can do 5% and it's still conventional. It's not FHA. So I was like, okay, let's explore that. And I, when I ran the numbers, yeah, the monthly price was kind of high. In, it included PMI because I wasn't doing 20% down. Yep. But the number still worked for me. Because a two-bedroom apartment that I was you know, trying to rent, um, and I was, get, I was getting married at the time, was, I believe, only five $600 different from the townhouse mortgage. Okay. That was the only difference because I live in a very expensive rental area in Southern California. So I did the math and I was like, Hey, you know, the mortgage pay down itself is about 600. So the Delta that's going to be washed away. That was the number in my head. Yeah. So I bought this three bedroom, three bath, new construction townhome in the suburbs. And that was a, that was looking back. That was a great purchase because It was new construction. Everything was new. And each bedroom had its own bathroom. Oh, wow. Nice. So, yeah. Naturally, what my wife and I did was like, hey, what are we going to do with this extra bedroom? Let's rent it out. And I wasn't even aware of house hacking at the time. I didn't know about, you know, being a landlord, all of that. But I kind of connected the dots almost looking backwards. So we rented the room out to our sister-in-law, actually. So it was somebody that we trusted. 
And because I, I didn't do any of the vetting, I didn't know any of that. Right. So if I, looking back, it could have been very dangerous, but (laughs) (laughs) I was able to get a family member in there paying $700 a month, essentially bringing down my mortgage to what it was, um, when I was paying for an apartment rental and I get mortgage pay down appreciation, tax benefits, um, all of that jazz. And my wife and I, we went on a trip. I think it was a trip to Cancun. And this is during the 4th of July. And my sister-in-law, ACH, sent me the rent. And I just remember waking up in my bed. And this was my light bulb moment. I remember opening my Wells Fargo because I got a notification that $700 was deposited. I'm like, this is it. When I'm out here enjoying the you know warm waters of Cancun, yeah. you know this passive income is hitting my account. I need more of this. And that's what really got me down the whole rabbit hole of bigger pockets, podcasts, you know, articles, reading yep. books on how I can get more real estate rental properties. Yeah, that's awesome. And I have a note here, uh, and maybe I've got this wrong, so you can correct me. $10,000 lesson learned when buying his first income property. What's that? Is that this property we're talking about? No. So this one is actually, I would consider not an income property because it's just my uh, primary residence. Okay. So yeah, this actually is a good segue to my first rental property okay. where I lost $10,000. Um, <laughs> good lesson learned though. Yeah. So, you know, I think I spoke with you before on this as well, Mike, is, you know, you can sometimes, you know, pay for a mastermind and coaching and get value that way. Um, And you can also learn by doing. Um, So this almost I consider my $10,000 ticket into real estate um, is just the way that I accepted it is I realized that you can buy turnkey properties or rent ready properties for those listeners uh, who are not familiar with the term out of state. So I live in Southern California. When I was trying to buy my next property, if I'm not going to do an owner-occupied, they wanted at least 20% down. And then we get to the same problem of me having to wait five or six years to buy one property. And even if we get there, I'm not even sure if I can make the numbers work to make it cash flow. So yeah, what I did was I started researching out-of-state on bigger pockets. I found about 20 metro areas that I liked, Indianapolis, Kansas City, all these different uh, Midwest primarily cities. Yep. And I started just calling them all, like turnkey providers, contractors, agents. The good thing is that if you're on the West Coast, you have no excuse. You can hustle. Just wake up at 5 a.m. People are already out and about in the East Coast. It's 8 o'clock for them. Mm -hmm. And just start making calls, set up these meetings, and just interview them. And I didn't know what I was doing, but each time I talked to a new agent, contractor, or property manager, I was getting closer and closer to the right one that fit kind of my needs. Right. So I found a turnkey provider in Kansas City. They were a one-stop shop, did the acquisition, the sales, the rehab, and then they managed it on the back end. Okay. And after interviewing about 10 providers, this particular one said all the right things. And I do want to highlight, they say all the right things when you're first (laughs) trying to date them. Right. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And I, after about a month of just analyzing, I had my little nifty calculator, the biggest bigger pockets calculator that I plugged in all of my rental uh, leads. And I found one that I just really fell in love with. 
And that's another lesson learned. Don't fall in love with a particular property. <laughs> these are great. These are great lessons so far. I'm waiting for the 10,000, but these are great so far. Yeah. So I fell in love with this one and I just started negotiating and I ended up buying it about $5,000 less than what they were trying to sell it for. So in my head, I'm like, this is a great deal. Yeah. And the numbers were for your listeners, I bought it for $66,000. So out of pocket, I only had to be out like $18,000, including like closing costs, which was super affordable for me. I'm like, Hey, I can buy like two, three of these a year. So I um, bought that and the rent was eight fifty. Okay. So my due diligence after listening to podcasts, reading all of the books, made sure I got an inspection, got the appraisal contingency, asked them to make repairs, if any, to the CapEx deferred maintenance stuff because this was advertised as a turnkey. I got a copy of the leases. I thought I did everything that I need to to make sure that this was working. And I also checked up on the turnkey provided themselves and they had some good reviews on bigger pockets as well. So I'm like, Hey, I'm golden. Like my background is an auditor. So, Hey, I'm kind of approaching this, how I would an audit client. Yeah. So I closed on this in January of 2018 and it was good for the first three months. Yeah. And the first three months, uh, you know, as funny as it might sound, it has the 90 day maintenance and warranty guarantee, meaning if there were any late to the rent, they would cover it. Any maintenance, they would cover it. Now, around the fourth month, this is when things start to get interesting because I get my first email saying, hey, the tenant is unable to pay this month's rent. And the tenant has been only been there for like five or six months. So I owned it quickly after they leased up this tenant, I was just wondering, hey, what's going on? And they said, hey, don't worry. We're going to put them on a payment plan. They're just struggling right now. One of the, it was a husband and wife and they lost their job. So I was like, hey, I totally understand life happens. So I was like, okay, let's give them some time. During this time, my main property manager contact Oh, I got to say, Mike, I even flew out there before I bought this property. Okay. So it's not like I just bought this site right. unseen yeah. without any due diligence. Yeah, I, I mean, spent it money like and time. So far, you spent money and time and you've also vetted out the, the turnkey provider. I mean, it sounds so far, sounds like textbook, like you're doing everything that I would expect a person would do. Yeah, yeah. So at, during this time, after they informed me that the tenant could not pay the rent, my property manager changed. So this new person said, Uh hey, I'm in charge of your portfolio now. And then a month later, when I try to follow up with that person, see how the collection is going, that person left and a third person came within the span of three months. So that was a red flag. Yeah, bad sign. sign. And what I came to realize is now I went back to bigger pockets. I started researching their name. Smoke is coming up. Now I'm getting the same turnkey provider name but with negative reviews. It's like, mm-hmm. hey, I'm having trouble getting a hold of this person. You know, my tenants aren't paying the rehab XYZ. So, okay, these are red flags. At this point, though, I started networking with other people. So I've started to list out other property manager that I feel like can take over this property if needed. Yeah. Now, the third property manager who I was in, in contact with She was actually a person from another state who managed like a thousand units that came over to assist this company that was struggling. And she was very honest with me. It's like, hey, 
we're really struggling here. I'm, I'm here to consult and take over and I'm going to do this, this, and this. And she told me over a track record. I'm like, okay, these guys are now moving in the right direction. Yeah. They're bringing somebody professional, putting in systems. Well, a month later, that person leaves. Um, I don't have to tell you if the fourth person leaves. And later on, I the, the, the fourth person who was a property manager who came in to consult, I called her on a direct sell. And she was like, hey, Bo, I, I cannot help this company. It's already kind of crumbling. Mm. And I just didn't want to be going down with the ship. But I got to tell you, your tenant, they're unqualified to be in there. So the, the husband or something is like working at the bar for tips or something like that, where they don't even make three times the income. And these are specific guidelines that the turnkey property told me. So basically at this point, it's a breach of their own policy. Mm. So it's not something that, uh, an investor could have had visibility to if they're not following their own policies and guidelines. Yeah. So that was the last straw. Um, I decided to fire them and they suddenly pull up their property management contract saying, Hey, if you fire us less than a year, you have to give us a thousand dollars to exit the contract. And this is me being a totally newbie investor, super scared, thinking that they can, you know, bully me into paying a thousand dollars. So I ended up actually just staying until that one year expired. Looking back, this was something that, you know, they were just being bullies and I yeah. should have pushed because they weren't keeping their part of the deal right. by putting a unqualified tenant. So I've so I've racked up about four thousand dollars in losses approximately because I've collected some during the payment plan, they still paid in a little bit. Like if it's eight fifty, they would pay like four hundred dollars, five hundred dollars. Really, And that's another lessons learned for new investors is don't take partial payments because yeah. that could delay the eviction process. Yep. So if you start the eviction, don't accept any payments, at least for the market of Kansas City that I'm in. I don't know if it's varies it, from state to state. It's the same in my state. It's the same thing. You'd never take a partial payment. It just just drags it out even more. Yeah. And I was, you know, I was oblivious to this. I don't know as a newer investor, I was hoping my property manager would guide me through the process. When I brought in my new property manager, that's when he put the foot down, no more partial payments. We're not going to drag this on. We're going to evict them. That new property manager got them evicted in like a month and placed the new tenant. And I was just super thankful because he sat me down and he's like, Hey, Bo, I know it's been a rough year, but don't worry because it's a good property. You bought in a good location. Yeah. So that's another lesson learned. You might have bad property management and the operations might be bad, but you can't change the location um, and the actual building itself. So as long as you kind of do right in the acquisition phase, that can also definitely help yeah. mitigate a lot of the downside risk. So we were able to get a good cash flowing tenant um, about a month and a half later after we turned it. Were there but many here's repairs? where I lost... I do want to hear that. I, I'm, this is like the yeah. payoff. But were there any repairs <laughs> after the first tenant left and they really weren't paying, right? Like, were there like, did they do damage? Yeah, it wasn't significant. Thank goodness, about $3,000. So I just had to replace the carpet because they, they had two large dogs mm. and just the paint. It was just some normal wear and tear. They also had a kid. Yeah. Um, so those are some of the damages. 3000 not too bad. I was yeah. actually, you know, bracing for the worst. However, after I evicted them, they came back, kicked down the front door, and they took all my appliances. Oh, you're kidding. 
I am not kidding you. Yeah, the story gets better, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> All right, let's. Okay, was that where did the ten thousand? Is that part of the ten thousand that you lost? Exactly. So, yeah. like, lost in rental income, some of the legal fees, um, and the re- t- uh, the rent turn, as well yeah. as the appliances. And just the overall holding costs where I just lost a lot of money. So Man. that adds up to my 10000 Man, that's that sucks. But lots of good lessons in there, right? Like tons of things oh, yeah. that can sometimes those things, some of those things happen individually, right? But you had like this perfect storm of horribleness. Would, okay, I, I know the answer to this question, I'm pretty sure. But do you still uh, invest out of state? Yes, I definitely do. Yep. Okay. So the the silver lining in all of this, and you know, when I reflect on this lesson learned, I haven't actually lost money on a property since then. Nice. And I've been able, I've been very blessed to pick up sixty three units since I bought my first one. And like you just said, Mike, this was a perfect storm. It told me what not to do when buying the next property. Yep. Like this is another example where I bought on a huge lot. You could literally fit eight of these properties in this lot. It has a big, big yard. And my you know, newbie investor brain thinks, hey, maybe later on, if I want to divide it, put more buildings and all of this will be great. But on the other flip side, the lawn care maintenance, um, there's large trees that ended up falling when there was a big storm in Kansas City that cost thousands of dollars just to cut and remove. These are huge, huge trees. Yeah. And also because it's so, the lot is so big when it's vacant, it's a prime target. It's a, I would say it's still a B-class area, but it's a prime target for people uh, in the winter, if they're homeless, to break in. Because there's no property like right next to it. It's just such a big plot of land. So now when I buy property, I don't buy it with such a large lot unless I have plans to like, divide it right away and build something or anything like that. That's smart. That's super smart. Yeah. So you, the first, the first, uh, that out of state property was in Indianapolis, Kansas right? city, Kansas city. Okay. Kansas city. Yep. And then since then my notes, according to my notes, you have properties in Indianapolis and little rock. Is that, is that accurate? Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, are these other areas that you identified when you were in bigger pockets looking for places to go? Did you end up going with some of the other places you found or how did you decide on these markets? What was your criteria? Because I know there's a lot of people listening who maybe live in Southern California and it's like, this is just, you know, the cost is prohibitive. I can't afford to buy rentals or flips or whatever it is. How did you, yeah, I'm sure there was a lot that went into it. You're a smart guy, you're analytical, but can you give us like a high level approach of how do you go about determining which markets are good for you? Yeah. So for me, there were just about four bright rules like that I had to make sure I hit if I was going to even consider investing in that market. Number one was it, it needed to cash flow, number one. Okay. So the rent to rent to price ratio needed to be favorable. I can't have these 0.3, 0.4s like the California market. I needed at least a 1%. Ideally, a 1.3 to 1.5 is what I was looking for in the Midwest. And then number one, uh, number two, there needed to be population growth. Um, I don't want people moving out. I want people moving in. 
So a lot of states actually hit that that first and second metric. Like you can even look at Texas. A lot of the cities in Texas would have hit that metric.、Mm-hmm. But then when you go to look at the other cash flow metrics, like property taxes, it was much higher. So then I I use different analytics to kind of eliminate them from the list. So if、yeah. I started with again like eighteen metro cities in the United States, it dwindled down to like ten after. Like cash flow, yeah, and then also with the population growth, and it ha- also had to be a diverse economy. I mean, I looked at Memphis a lot too because it hit the first two metric, but then I, whenever I talk to providers in Memphis, all they talk about is FedEx and the logistics. I'm sure there's other avenues of economic growth in those markets, but when everybody just talks about FedEx and like just the logistics. Part of the economy. I、yeah. want it to be a little bit more diverse. Yeah. You know, I don't want it to be like、uh, Detroit with the auto manufacturers. Yep. So when I looked at Kansas City and Indianapolis, you know, they have a robust healthcare. They have different. They also have logistics. They're located in the Midwest. Yep. So with all of those different kind of、uh, sources of economy and growth, I, I dwindled it down to those markets. And then the fourth one that I was looking at is it really needed to be、um, favorable favorable for the landlord the the laws yeah meaning like in California I I went to a lot of meetups as I was analyzing these and I had met an investor who had a California rental property it went、um, into default the tenants weren't paying and they felt filed bankruptcy、hmm. and. His his lawyer told him, "Hey, it's going to be at least another six to nine months, realistically, based on his experience, to actually get these guys out. It's going to get dragged on and on and on,、yeah. because it's such a pro tenant state." Yep. The judges. Yep. So, with those, like it, it quickly scared me away. I wasn't thinking about investing in California anyway because of、yeah. the rent to price ratio,、yep. but that gave me another criteria. It's like when I'm looking at these other states, if it's、uh, tenant friendly. Then unfortunately, it's not going to work for me. Like,、yeah. but Little Rock, as an example, I believe, and don't quote me on this, is if I file an eviction and it gets approved, I can get somebody out from filing an eviction, escorted by the sheriff, in about thirty-two to thirty-five days. Okay. So it, yeah, the process is pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah.、Um, if it needs to get there, right? Yeah. So same same thing with Indianapolis and Kansas City. It, it is pretty quick. Probably not as fast as Little Rock, but. Um, I've only had to evict two people so far,、hmm. um, and I probably didn't spend more than two months doing going through the whole process. So how? Long so you still you know lose money and it sucks, but yeah. yeah, it does suck. But that thank you for sharing your criteria. That's very very helpful. I'm sure to a lot of folks who are trying to figure out how to analyze a city. Two questions: How long have you been? When, when did you buy your first cash flow property? Like how long have you been doing this? What year was it? Yeah. So. I closed on that Kansas City property January of 2018. Okay, so just a couple so, of years now, little under two,、uh, three years. Okay,、um, where do you find the data that you use to analyze the property, the cities? Right. So you're looking at cities. You're looking at the different criteria. Is there a central location where you're finding this data, or do you have to curate it like differently for every city all over the place? Yeah, I can't. It's been a while, so I can't remember the exact websites off the top of my head. I actually wrote a blog about it on biggercashflow.com,、okay. like city citydata.com, bestplacesnet, 
Um, there's a couple of trusted, verified resources yep. that aggregate this data for you. So that's where I Okay, to. so that's cool. Go to biggercashflow.com to check out uh, that blog article. Do a search for it, like city picking cities or I don't know if you know the actual name of the blog but just surf through it I'm sure there's tons of great stuff find the one where he talked about how to uh, evaluate the the different cities so that's cool so let's so you've been doing this just now for a couple of years which is super impressive you have 63 units are those 63 rental units single family homes or some of those multifamily yeah so I would say over half of them are single family but I have a couple of duplexes I have one 10 unit and I have a couple quadplexes. Okay. And this this podcast is called Just Our Real Estate. So uh, why don't you tell us in your opinion or in your, you know, if you were to start over again, how does a person get started? How, how could a person get kind of the same? I know you maybe can't speak to flipping and wholesaling because you're not doing it. But to, for someone who says, I, two years from now, I'd love to have 63 units. That'd be a dream, right? Like, how can they get that process going? Yeah. And this one... Uh, as cliche as it might sound is you have to really start with the end in mind. And I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of our listeners may have listened to it on an article or a podcast, but it's even more apparent to me now that I've been doing this for three years is if you just, um, just starting is great. Uh, but also you want to think about the end in mind because I, the reason for this is I talk to new investors at least three times a week. They find me on the podcast or the blog. They reach out to me. I literally give them my cell phone number and we have a 30-minute conversation. And a lot of them listen to my journey and be like, hey, Bo, how can I get 10 properties in the next year? Well, I have a lot of questions for you because, yeah, you can pick up 10 properties like number-wise, but are these going to be 10 properties that you want to hold for a long period of time? What is your end goal? So if you don't have the end goal in mind, you're just going to pick up any random properties. Yep. And these could be other investors' problem childs that you're just buying because I want to hit 10 units, yep. right? So for me, the, the number of units is never the goal. It's making sure that whatever I buy and invest in, it really correlates with the lifestyle that I want in the future. So I know that I don't want a bunch of you know, 20% cash on cash war zone properties. That's not something that I want to deal with. Yeah. Other people have great success doing that. Yeah. I don't want to deal with that. I want, you know, B minus C plus kind of that uh, blue collar working class rental properties that will yep. stay occupied during a recession. And I can be hands off sending it to a good property manager. Yep. And in order to do that, I reverse engineer it. I want $10,000 net uh, cash flow per month after all expenses are paid. So what I do is, okay, how many units do I need to do to get to $10,000? And so to answer your question, again, it is starting with the end in mind. And it also just goes back to educating yourself because you don't know what you don't know. And although knowledge is useless without action, it's just taking action without knowledge is very dangerous too, in my opinion. So you want to make sure that you are, you know, educated enough to be dangerous, you know, th there's yeah. going to be that fine balance between educating yourself too much where you consume all the podcasts in the world and audiobooks in the world. And you're just, you kind of have that, what do you call it? Food coma, but like education <laughs> yeah. coma and you don't take any action. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So you got to play that fine balance, but educate yourself. Think of the end in mind. 
And then just find somebody who's already doing what you want to do and yeah. reverse engineer. For me, like if I want to just, you know, just kick butt in wholesaling, I'll probably look for the mics of the world and just try to learn as much as I can from Mike. There's no uh, rhyme or reason for me to recreate the wheel if I already find successful people in the industry yeah. just killing it every day. I agree with that 100%. Just out of curiosity for you, and I, I know this is the kind of question people have, even though it's not necessarily crazy useful, but I want to at least purge the question. You mentioned 10000 maybe it was hypothetical, but $10,000 a month after expenses. What do your rentals on average as a portfolio, what's the cash flow after all expenses? How much money does each door typically, or let me put it different. What do you, what do you target? Like what to you would be acceptable amount of cash flow after, after expenses? Yep. That, that's a great question. I actually had to analyze this recently because I did my taxes as well as um, I had to refinance about 40 of my units in a big commercial portfolio. So I target $200 net a door for single family. Okay. And then for multifamily, I target $100 a door. Okay. Okay. So on average, when I took a look at it recently, it's about 120. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Blended. Thank you. That's honest. I appreciate that. Um, so how did you choose? I think I know, but how did you choose your strategy? Why, why rentals? Why not flipping? Right. And I'll just devil's advocate, right? Flipping rentals. A lot of times people see it as a, as a, as a slow drip or a drip, whatever you want to look at it, where flipping is like big chunks, right? You can really amass more money faster. Why not go that route? Yeah. So I, I thought about that myself as well. And for me, the end goal was cash flow. So I, I knew that I want, I didn't want to create another job for myself. Mm -hmm. So I guess taking a step back, uh, like Mike mentioned, I'm a full-time W2 employee still to this day. And I am working in corporate America. I am on track to, you know, get promotions and get that salary increase. It's kind of like the safe route with quotes, air quotes, I like to say. <laughs> um, but with that, I also enjoy my job. If it's a job that I really dreaded going to work a day in and day out, yeah. then yes, I'll be all in. I'll be trying to do flips, different strategies, actively working on this. For me, the way that I saw it, and I could be wrong, I could be proven wrong, but for me, rental properties was something that I can do nights and weekends, not spend too much time. Once I acquire the right property and systems with the property managers and real estate agents in place, yeah. then I could be relatively out of the picture. So that is the re main reason why I chose uh, cash flowing rental properties. Okay. With that said, more recently, I am doing flips. Um, these are like renovation flips, not wholesaling flips. Okay. Um, so I am incorporating some mix into the business because at this point, three years in, I have created a team. And with rental properties getting overpriced with newer investors day in and day out, I've found that flip properties have a little bit more margin. Hmm. So I, I've been rehabbing and flipping properties this year. Okay. Sounds good. It's a good time for it. Prices are pretty pretty good right now. What would you say for folks that are listening? And believe me, there's I guarantee there's more people listening right now that have a W-2 that are either doing both, flip, you know, flipping, wholesaling, buying rentals, whatever it is, plus their day job, or they're worse, they're working a day job and they desperately want to start doing this, but you know, they have every excuse in the world. 
How do you make it work? And what are some of the hurdles that you had to overcome with a W-2 job? Or was it pretty seamless right from the start for you? Yeah, it's it's definitely wasn't seamless. Um, it was feet to the fire, just learning with obviously the $10,000 mistake and just a lot of hours spent. It was just grinding. My wife is not that involved in the business right now, although she's very supportive of what I do. But she's just seen from the side how hard I work. I work, I, I wake up at five, six in the morning to make those calls, at least the first year. Yeah. Now I don't have to do that because I've built the relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, flying over to each of my markets, Indy, Kansas City, and Little Rock, as well as working on the portfolio during weekends, like 63 units. I don't have a full-time bookkeeper or a part-time bookkeeper. I should now. Yes, That's what I'm realizing during tax season. <laughs> uh, but yeah, on, on the weekends, I'm on Stessa. I'm inputting transactions myself. Um, so it, it's definitely been a grind. So for our listeners who are listening to this, um, if I really think back to my early days, you just have to put in the work. Yeah. Like if you do what everybody else is doing, you're going to get what everybody else gets. Totally. So if you don't like where you're at and you don't like where this is going and you don't like the 40-year work in corporate America, hopefully retire by 65 with a 401k strategy, mm-hmm. which I don't like, yeah. then you got to make a change. And nobody can challenge the effort that you put in right now. Yep. So Totally. How do you balance? You have a full-time job and you have a, a budding dynasty, real estate dynasty. What, how do you keep that all straight? You have a wife. I don't know if you have any kids or not, but how do you, how do you keep your time balanced or do you? Yeah. So no kids. So that's probably a big part. A lot of my friends do have kids and my wife and I were you know, talking about starting a family now. Yeah. So I know a lot of that is going to change, which is another reason why I'm just hustling and squeezing every hour I have right now, because yeah. I do want to spend time with my kids. You know, I want to, I don't want to miss a minute of that. So another reason, um, it, it's, it's not a balance for me. Um, I like to call it the work-life uh, blend, um, as some of my colleagues call it, is that you just have to find what's important to you and incorporate it into your day-to-day. Yeah. And as long as you're, I feel like you're doing something meaningful that you're creating, it's not like you're having to balance. It's not a trade-off for me. It's like, hey, everything that I'm doing in my W-2 job, it's allowing me to have the safety of my salary and my health benefits and all of that to now save and invest in real estate. Everything is just blending and working together. Yeah. Um, So that's the way that I approach it. I don't know if that made any sense. No, it did. I like that too, because I agree with you. I think balance is tough and everyone's different. You don't have kids. Maybe someone who's listening does and they, they can't do it the same. My, I have kids, but they're all older. So they don't, they don't, you know, they're like 20 and older, so they don't need me, you know, don't even necessarily want me around all the time. So, and I've got, <laughs> I've got, you know, I have a little bit more flexibility. So for me, I'm working, I don't work early in the morning, but I work late at night and, and that doesn't hurt anybody as affect anybody. That's kind of how I want to do it. So I think learning, learning your own, you know, your own self, like how, how do you function the best? Um, and, and frankly, what your spouse, your significant other, your kids or whatever are happy with too, right? I mean, if you have a spouse who's like, you know, maybe she or he has their own thing that they're doing and, and it's, you know, you're not stealing time from anybody, then, then I say work more if you want to work more. Um, how, has your strategy changed this year because of COVID? What, what, how has that affected your business? Because it, it is a hand off, hands-off business, right? And you're not doing some of the things that other people do. However, 
There are people who are not, you know, getting paid and they're losing their job and and that kind of thing. So how has this affected you um, so far? Yep. And before I touch on the COVID note, if I may take a step back and the spouse, I think that's really important as well. Because as I was just working a ton of hours on my real estate business, I did realize, hey, I also don't want this to negatively impact my relationship with my wife. Because the whole reason I'm doing this is for her and, and the family that we're going to create in the future. So what I did was I was very intentional about how I spend my time block. If if I'm spending time with her, like phones off, I don't do any real estate because it's so easy Smart. to get a notification on my iPhone and be like, my real estate agent's like, hey, do you want to offer on this property? And I'll be like, hey, hold on, honey. I got to analyze this deal, right? Yeah, yeah. That happened numerous times in the beginning. So being super intentional and also aligning expectations, I tell her, hey, you know, if we do this together and we hit this goal, we love to travel. Although with COVID, it's less uh, these days. Sure. Um, I say, hey, you know, to celebrate these small wins, uh, we're going to go to Hawaii after we hit these metrics. And yeah. we've done that in the past. We went to Cancun, nice. Europe. So all of these things are very important. So make sure that you incorporate that um, in in whatever you're doing in real estate. It's just something I wanted to share with your listeners. Yeah, smart. Very smart. <laughs> so COVID, how and has it affected you? Yeah, with COVID, um, like I mentioned, I was only doing buy and hold rental properties. This year, I have uh, flipped three properties. So I, I'll buy them from wholesalers like you, and then I'll put some rehab work into it, and I'll sell it on the MLS. And my first property probably made like $15,000, so nothing crazy, but it was just a proof of concept for me because I've never done it before. Yeah. Second one... Um, it just hit a home run and made like $40,000 because nice. I found like an additional bedroom in the back. Um, so <laughs> nice. I'm like, this is not bad. Um, cause I've already had the contractors and team in place. So might as well just kind of include it into the machine or the sure. funnel yeah. once you get to that point. So yeah, in, during COVID I bought another, um, flip that I closed on last week. Right. So I'm going to continue to do flips until um, a good rental property comes to mind. But single families, one to four units, they're way overpriced in my markets right now because the mom and pop investors with the Fed kind of pumping money into the economy, I feel like they feel more confident. They're willing to now reposition their cash into real estate in the Midwest. And they're paying $10,000, $15,000 over my max allowable offer. Yeah. So I'm just going to wait for kind of like the water to come back out Yep. And then I'll scoop them up from those investors who no longer want to do it. Totally. Same here. I got the same strategy. That's that's awesome. Well, listen, man, we, we could definitely talk all day, but I want to make sure that I encourage people to go check out the Bigger Cash Flow podcast. Number one, it's great. And not just because I was on it. It's a great podcast. You should check it out. And if you do, by the way, I always say this, give them a rating, give them a review. That is currency to podcasters. It really helps us a lot. So go and check it out and do that. Uh, BiggerCashflow.com. Go check it out. We talked about the article about uh, evaluating cities and how he does that. So I think that's important. People sometimes pick cities for the wrong reasons. So let's do this with a little bit of an analytical approach. Bowman, tons of value here. And I think very inspirational for people who are working a nine to five and maybe they love it and they don't want to leave, which is totally great. Or maybe they they don't love it. But the reality is, and I did this myself, I had a nine to five job I did not like, but I had to continue to work it while I also built my real estate business 
on the side because that's just what I had to do. I had a wife and kids and a mortgage and all this stuff. So the bottom line is, and you said it earlier in the interview, and I love it, like you just have to go out there and do the work. Like you have to put in, if you do what you've been doing, you will get what you've been getting. If you do what everyone else does, you'll get what they have. And if you want to have something that somebody else has, you have to do the work that they're doing. Like don't, don't try to figure it out. Reverse engineer what they're doing. Find someone who's doing it and do that. And don't make excuses. All of us have, you know, benefits and negatives and things that we were blessed with and things that we were cursed with. Like we all have them. So just don't use that as an excuse. Get out there and do the work and uh, be uh, learn as much as you learn as much as you need to to be dangerous. Like you said, right? You don't have to learn everything. Don't be irresponsible, but don't use learning as an excuse to not do it. I think is I think we can agree. So, Bo, thanks for doing this, man. I really, really appreciate it. Anything else you want to say or any any way they can get a hold of you if people want to get a hold of you and ask questions? I know you give out your phone number. You don't have to do that here, but is there any other way people can get a hold of you? <laughs> yeah, so you can email me at bo at biggercashflow.com. Uh, you can check out my website, biggercashflow.com or my Instagram handle, uh, biggercashflow as well. Okay, awesome. I will check that out. And again, I thank you for doing this, man. Have a good weekend. Have a good rest of your year. Hopefully, we can get back to traveling and get you to Hawaii and Cancun and all the places that you and your wife want to go. I want to do the same thing. So I'm, I'm hoping a little bit a little bit selfishly, but I hope for all of us, we can start traveling soon. <laughs> all right, man, we'll talk to you. Awesome. All right, thanks, Mike. All right, guys, hopefully you enjoy that. I know I did. Bo's a good guy, very smart guy. And uh, I love he's doing this with his full-time job. I mean, it's it's reality. A lot of us have that full-time job when we're starting out. And some of us don't want to leave it. He doesn't want to leave his. He has that W-2 income. He has a career that he really, really likes that he's working hard on. He's progressing and getting promoted. He likes having that passive income as a secondary uh income basically as that that backup that safety net income that allows him to do the things he wants to do in life so a lot of us are in that situation to start off with and some of us stay in that situation because that's where we want to be so if that's you i hope you got something out of this i hope you see that there is a light at the end of the tunnel guys you can do this with a full-time job and uh, if you want to keep your full-time job, keep it. Nothing wrong with that. That's just your goal, and that's your your the way you want to do this business. And I think it's awesome. So, hopefully, that was inspirational, guys. And he also said it right. Like, you've got to put in the work. You've got to do what other people are not willing to do if you want to get things that other people just don't have because they're not willing to put in that work. So, hopefully, you loved it. I know I did, guys. Get out there and get started. Nine to five job doesn't matter. Stop making excuses. Get out there, work your butt off to get what you want and don't settle for less. We'll talk to you next time. Okay, you're still there. You're still listening. That's awesome. And I really appreciate that. Now, hopefully it wasn't an accident. Hopefully you didn't leave the room and I'm just talking to an empty room right now. But assuming you're still there, I want to do something really, really cool for you. For a limited time, I want to give you a free digital download of my book, the entire book, level jumping. If you're a listener to the show, you know it just came out and it really details how I took my business from being like one where I was just doing a few deals a month, maybe one or two deals a month to doing over 10 and sometimes 15 deals a month and over a hundred a year. And I went from doing very little profit to over a million dollars in profit. And I made that transformation in a 12 month period. And this book talks about what I did, the steps I took to transform my business and how you can too. So grab a free digital download and you can get that by texting the words just start as two words now just start to the number five five four four 
4. So text just start to 55444. I will send you a free digital download of my book. It's the complete book. There's nothing held back and that'll be completely yours just for making it to the end of the show and listening to me and I really really appreciate it guys. So I want to do something nice for you. I do this every once in a while at the end of shows and if you listen to the very end every once in a while I do a giveaway like this. So hopefully you enjoy that. Go grab a free copy. I hope you read it. I hope you love it. Reach out, let me know what you think. All right guys, talk to you next time.